Hey guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men develop their character, identity, and mindset in order to activate their potential and achieve their goals in life. And so today, uh, we're kind of changing things up a little bit, and we actually brought back one of our past guests for a second interview. And so you guys probably remember her. Her name is Leslie Tolan. She is a entrepreneur, life coach, and an advanced grief recovery specialist. And so for today's interview, we're going to be touching on a more specific topic, something that she decided to bring to the table, which is the six myths of grief and what to do about them. Thank you for coming on to the show again, Leslie. It is so a privilege to be with you again, Kamani. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, as I said to you last time, I'm just inspired to be with your young men and to make a difference in any way that I can because of growing up with brothers and so getting men and their emotions and their wishes for life. And I hope that what we share will make a difference. Yeah, I definitely think it will. Uh, from what I've seen with our reviews and such and the people that I've talked to, it seems like the content is really valuable to a lot of people. And so I'm sure that this episode will be the same. And so I guess we can go ahead and hop into it. And so since this is something that uh, you specialize in and it's like a lesson plan, I guess we can go ahead and just hop right into it. What would you say is the first type of grief? I actually um, wanted to just um, share with your listeners, if I may, Kamani, before we step into the first myth and say that what I'm so proud to do is that I inspire with the myths that we're going to talk about. What I do in my work is I inspire adults who have been impacted by personal loss to turn their pain into power. And part of the process of having that happen is walking through an educational process and learning about the immense amount of misinformation that there is in our fast-paced Western culture about grief and loss. And so what seems to be so with so many of the men whom I talk to who've been raised in perhaps a militaristic or a very strict home is that they have been taught to understand that men are to be strong and not show their emotions and not cry. Strong men don't cry seems to be like a myth that is very um, prevalent in our culture and it's so untrue. In fact, as an aside, just to share with you, when I met my now husband 13 years back, I remember being in a movie with him, one of our first dates, and it was an emotional movie. And when I looked over and he was shedding a tear or two, I thought, I really like this dude. I really like him, that he can show his emotions and just be so in touch with how he feels. That is so masculine to me. And that is so true with every woman I ever speak with. So I think that one of the myths that is so true in our culture are one and then two. The first is don't feel bad. And the second is replace the loss. And what I think would be a good conversation to have with you is to just cite some examples that my clients have given to me through my work with men over the last several years. And so as you're listening, guys, think about your first love, Maybe she was a woman, maybe he was a guy. Whomever that first love was, remember how you felt when you first saw him or her in your life and that absolute joy and happiness that you had that was like nothing you ever might have felt before. 
And then there's in time, perhaps a breakup. And we, you were heartbroken. And how did you feel? You felt like hell. And maybe a guy friend said, hey dude, don't feel bad. There's plenty of fish in the sea. There's another woman out there for you, an intellectual comment to an emotional feeling. This happens all the time. Or don't feel bad, dude. I, I know your, your husband just left you. Okay, you're gonna go online and meet another guy. What is that that is so prevalent in our culture? It's about having an intellectual response to an emotional experience. And it's so unhealthy. And it's true across the nation all the time. I hear it again and again and again. We don't know how to respond emotionally to something that is in our heart. We respond many times with our head. Hmm. Does that sound true, Kamani? Uh, I can definitely see what you're saying and thinking back on ways that I've probably responded to people and also people have responded to me whenever I've confided in them with something. I can see what you're talking about. And I think part of that, at least on my end, whenever I said things like that, maybe just came from not necessarily knowing what else to say. I think a lot of guys are kind of geared that way to where the mode that you immediately go into is problem solving mode whenever yes. someone comes to you with an issue. And so I think that's probably why a lot of people do that, because it seems like really the only thing to do. I don't think people really know how to stop and empathize. There's not really a class for that that people take, no. I guess you could say. No, there's not. There's not. Parents were not taught how to deal with loss. Grief is what we sweep under the carpet. And when we met the first time and talked about grief and some of the principles of grief, and I said, when I speak in public, I always ask an audience, what do you think is the single most off-limits topic of conversation in Western culture? And people will say divorce, death, no. Or they'll say feelings, emotions, no, it's grief. We are not taught by our parents, who many times were taught by immigrant parents, how to deal with loss. And when we say, don't feel bad and replace the loss, I want to cite some other examples for your listeners. Here's one for me as a little girl. My, my brothers, my two older brothers, so I'm the youngest of three and the only girl. My brothers are in their bedroom being guys, having their good time together or fighting like guys do. And I'm a little girl in my little girl's room with a precious little black and white cocker spaniel named Tuffy. Since I was two years old, Tuffy slept by me every night until I was six, and he was accidentally crushed by our neighbor's car. I was devastated. I was inconsolable. When he was killed, my father was on a sales trip. When my dad came home and saw my tears, he said, baby, don't cry, which is an intellectual response to my feelings at the time when I'm devastated meaning I'm uncomfortable with your tears, stop crying. On Saturday, we're gonna go to the pound and buy you a new dog. And we did. Do you think I could intellectually, I could emotionally rather bond with a new terrier after being with my little boy dog who was just killed and I was sleeping next to him every night for four years? No. It probably wasn't the same. No. That's not possible. And when I speak with my clients who've had pets 
that they have loved and lost. Many times the story is common and you can't replace the loss until you grieve who or what you have lost first. That's what needs to happen. And that's the kind of classes that I teach, which is how to process pain. So although my father meant well, the result was a new dog in the house that I didn't bond with ever. And my brothers barely did either. There's that. How many of you listeners, when you've broken up any kind of romantic relationship or been estranged from a friend, have had someone say to you, hey, she wasn't right for you anyway. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Or dude, that guy wasn't right for you. Go out and get online and meet somebody new. Replace the loss is common in American culture. That's why our divorce rate is so high, especially our second divorce rate, because people don't know how to be alone. They haven't learned that in our culture. And they go right out and replace the loss with someone new in a dynamic that wasn't healthy the first time and in a repeated second time isn't either and the relationship doesn't work out. We need to grieve what didn't work out so that we can move forward. And until we do, many times what happens is we have the same unhealthy dynamic with the second relationship. Can you so, identify with that? Yeah, I mean, something that that's uh, interesting about what you just said and it kind of brings to my attention something that I think I've noticed uh, as I've gone through different dating experiences and talked to other people and just, you know, really seeing what goes on in social media and everywhere else. It seems as though, I don't know if it was as much of a thing uh, back, you know, in other years, but I know now it seems as though people kind of view dating partners as more ex expendable. And so I can say uh, that my grandparents, uh, whenever my maternal grandparents uh, got divorced. That definitely wasn't something that they were happy about. And around that time, it wasn't something that was nearly as acceptable. But now it seems as though, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine. You know, it could be, you know, cultural shifts over time, which is normal. But one thing that I'll say is that it seems as though people kind of go into a marriage or a relationship with an idea that that person is expendable. And so whenever things get tough, there really is no incentive to work it out. Uh, people don't really see the need to, it seems like to me, because at the end of the day, like you just said, they kind of think to themselves, I can just go find a new partner. And so I think that that's pretty interesting. I also think that it's unhealthy in a way because it kind of goes back into what you said of having that, I guess, intellectual response. And it seems like it's kind of a thing that would handicap bonds that are made between people if they have that type of approach and if that's something that's that's prevalent, if they go into it with that view from the beginning, then I don't see how there could ever actually be a true strong bond between two people. Exactly. Yes, yes, and yes. And having that bond and developing that bond and cherishing, cherishing that bond is something that is rare and beautiful. And when it happens, it's really precious to protect it. And so often in our very fast paced culture, we are about the next fastest thing to correcting something that we don't like. We're on the go, on the go, on the go, next, 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 instead of taking a deep breath, 
standing still, looking at a partner and working out differences. And unless we are willing to work out what isn't right in this relationship, how are we going to have it be right in the next one? We're not. We're going to develop another toxic relationship probably that doesn't work either. So don't feel bad and replace the loss are two of the most common myths in our culture. Another example, by the way, Kamani, is a dear, um, uh, who's become a dear friend of mine, a client from many years ago. He wanted to be a doctor and he had actually failed his last MD testing to prep for med school. He called his father to tell him, felt badly in calling his father and his father said, son, don't feel bad, which is an intellectual response to his very emotional feelings about failure. Why don't you become a nurse instead? What? Why don't you replace the loss, become a nurse instead? When this young man had his whole life figured out, he thought, for going to med school. It was such a disappointment for him. But to be told that when the young man became my client, we discussed it, was just his father's own teaching from his late father about holding emotions in, intellectualizing emotion, and not knowing what the heck to say to someone who's talking about something that's a depth of feeling. So yes, this happens again and again and again in our culture. Uh, let's see, I want to tell you some other examples. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, supposing any of your listeners might have recently broken up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a friendship to estrangement of some kind. I have a client who came to me recently and he was a such a good hearted fellow. I'll call him Joe. He's 26, so he's young. Had a good job and he simply was living with his parents during the pandemic because of saving some bucks. His boyfriend had broken up with him and he was just bone crushed. He was so, so unhappy, Kamani. And he came to me about a month later. He found me through another client referral and we started talking and his group of friends said, hey, Dave, dude, don't feel bad. There's a great guy out for there looking for you right now. You have to come to our guys meeting where I know it's COVID, but some of us meet at the coffee shop down the street. Just come and meet them. And the feeling that he got, that he expressed to me emotionally, was no one could hear the depth of his broken heart. And all they wanted to do was fix it. Because men, God bless men, are in a fix-it mode usually. And we're more in our feelings, except sometimes. And we interact and interrelate in opposite ways at times. But they wanted to fix him. And he was just brokenhearted and needed to just lean into the way he felt about this breakup. He really loved this guy and wanted to have a life with him. And the guy just couldn't stay in the relationship, couldn't make it work, didn't want to make it work. And my client was broken, brokenhearted. Very often what we say in our culture, another myth is that grievers are broken. Grievers are not broken. We all are going to be grievers at some time in our lifetime. We are in the moment brokenhearted. And what we need is to have someone listen to us so we can do something constructive 
about our broken heart. So that's just another example. Okay, okay. So yeah, that's understandable. And so uh, from you kind of breaking it up like that and giving the examples, I think that we have a really good idea of, uh, of what that myth is. I think also that what's so difficult is when one of your listeners has a parent who is dying and in a place of ultimate loss, that others, when they finally say goodnight, the parent says goodnight, it's his last day, her last day on earth, that people who love your listener who don't know what to say will say something intellectual in response to something emotional like, you know what, Joe, your father was in pain. Now he's not suffering any longer. So just be happy for him that he's out of pain. When the son who wanted to spend another 25 years with his dad is brokenhearted about that loss and really needs to have someone just say, I am so sorry for your loss. Tell me more about your father. How can I help and support you at this time? What can I do for you? That's a more appropriate thing to say to someone who's had that kind of loss, but we're not taught what to say. And that's just part of what our culture is about. Some of the other statements that are inappropriate, just want to mention these are, he or she's in a better place. All things must pass. He or she led a full life. Don't be sad. The living must go on. Be grateful that you had your parent for so long. These are all intellectual comments to something that is really emotional because we don't know how to just look at our friend and say, I don't even know what to say to you. I just want you to know I'm here and anything I can do for you, I'm here. That's a wonderful thing to say even to be humble and say, I don't know what to say. I'm here for you. What can I do? Uh, Okay. So it seems like the proper approach in this type of situation is to say something that enables them to, to fully grieve and be able to work through it as opposed to saying something that I guess would function the way to where it, it attempts to cut off their, their grieving and have them move in a different direction. What we're trying to do is let them go through the full, the full course of grieving and say things that will encourage that. So that way they can fully heal or get it out of their system and then be able to move on in a healthy way, as opposed to looking for the new thing, whether it's the new dog or new partner or anything else to fill a gap. Exactly. Exactly. You get it really clearly. And that's part of our culture, Kamani, is... Excuse, we tend in our American Western fast-paced culture to deal with an intellectual response to grief rather than an emotional response to grief. And that's what we need to learn, all of us. So another of the myths is to grieve alone and be strong for others. And many times I've heard from my clients that when they have come home to talk about something that was a grieving issue from school, whatever level they're in, if they were a young boy in grade school or if they were in college and they come home to visit mom and dad and something really sad happened, what 
their emotion shown on their faces with tears was met with by a stern father who was probably raised by a militaristic father himself and didn't know how to deal with tears or emotion said, you know, if you're going to cry, go to your room and cry alone. What? What every griever needs, the antidote to grieving is participation every single time. And yes, there's a time when perhaps being alone for a bit might be a solution temporarily, but mostly what we need when we're in grief is to have someone put their arm around us and say, I'm here. You don't have to talk to me. Just know I'm here. When you're ready to talk, I'm here. And not have to say a word and be in the room with that person with your love surrounding them silently for an hour or two or half a day. Grieving alone is not a solution to solving the grief that we feel when we've had a loss. And yet it's part of our culture that's ingrained in our culture. Being strong for others is another common myth. So the way that it would go is, when I was lamenting over the loss of my precious little pooch when I was a little girl, and my father came home from that sales trip, and one of my brothers closest to me in age, Steve, was also in tears because he loved this little toughy cocker spaniel. And my father looked at him and said, don't cry. You need to be strong for your sister. Shed, don't shed those tears. Buckle up. What? The guy loved the dog for four years. Every day, every day, every day. Played with him, fed him, walked him, all of it. Played together with the sister and the dog. But that was my papa's training from his militaristic like father is don't, if you're a man, we don't shed tears. We need to be strong for others. And that's the way, that's the law of the land in showing emotion. Don't show it, buckle up. And if you're going to cry, I'm going to give you something to cry about. It's crazy. So just to clarify, actually, to make sure that I'm, that I'm tracking as we're going through it, would this be myth number three? I think we're on three. So we had, uh, don't feel bad. That's number one. Number two is replace the loss. Number three is grieve alone. Yes. Number four is be strong for others. Okay. So this is number four. Yes. Okay. And number five that we're going to discuss is just keep busy. And number six and the last is just give it time. So being strong for others, I'm sure that some of your listeners can relate to these stories where when they were having an emotional moment at home or at school and were feeling some feelings about a loss and someone who could not deal with those tears that they were showing said, dude, you know, get it together. You need to be strong for your teammate if they're at school or basketball or football or whatever the heck it is that someone else who's intellectualizing their emotional response doesn't know how to deal with their emotional response. And that person's response to their emotion is, hey, buckle up, be strong for your sister, be strong for your mother, don't feel those feelings. That's a myth. That is a myth. Men have some of the most beautiful sensitive hearts of any human beings I have encountered in my lifetime. My brothers, my late dad, my clients, 
It's a joy for me to work with men. And yet in our culture, we have a myth that surrounds our American culture that men are supposed to be strong and not cry. It's BS. It's so unnatural. Huh. You know, the, the thing ahead. about that, that uh, I think is the most unhealthy part is that in a way you could, I guess you could, in my opinion, you could justify it whenever you have people that are coming to you, depending on you to, to get that, uh, that emotional support, like we talked about earlier. But I think the flaw in it, I think where the main flaw is, is how guys don't ever look to get that outlet for themselves. They stay there to be that rock for other people, uh, to empathize with other people and help them to get through things, but they never do take the time to do it for themselves. And they usually don't foster the relationships around them to be able to have a community or a support system to where they can talk through these sorts of things. They kind of just bottle that stuff up and just let it fester on its own, like within them, instead of giving themselves that same opportunity they gave their wife or kids or anybody else to talk it through and fully grieve, fully grieve. They never do give themselves the opportunity. And I can even speak from personal experience, how kind of holding those things, they never do fully get resolved. You never do find a way to solve those uh, deep seated emotions or whatever. And they can manifest in unhealthy ways, I'll say. Yes, uh, Kamani. So I so appreciate the beauty of your words and expressing what you just did. And when we talked the first hour last month or when that was, we talked about the definitions of grief and that grief is the normal and natural reaction to loss of any kind. And that what we do in our culture is many times not normal, not natural, and often unhealthy. That grief is reaching out for someone who's always been there for us. And when we want him or her for us one more time, they're no longer there. Or grief is how we feel, the conflicting mass of emotions we feel when anything familiar changes. Anything familiar changes. That means we're in grief a lot of the time. If we, I just found out that the yoga studio that I adore and have been a part of for 20 years might close. I just found this out two hours before our call. I had such a mixed bag of emotions. I didn't know what to do with myself for a bit. And I thought, I'm going to look forward to talking with Kamani. We're going to talk about the myths of grief. I'm going to be present for these wonderful young men on this call. And and put my feelings aside. In the back of my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This has been part of my life for so many years. This one location, it's an hour, uh, 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 listen to me, it's a 10 minute drive from my door and it might close. What am I going to do? I'm already grieving it. And this is a change in a familiar pattern in my life. Is it a loss of a human being? No. Would it be a loss of people together in a community? Yes, it would be really sad. And I'm thankful that I'm able to know about how to express my emotions and that I have the learning from this book that you know I teach so that I know how to express and process my own grief about it if in fact this is what happens. And it's such a joy to have that knowledge so that when one of your young men might call me because of a loss they're going through, I know exactly how to teach them to process pain. 
And that's the beauty of the grief recovery method that is so unique and so unusual because it's the only method in America that is scientifically proven to be successful. <sighs> so there's that. Um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. You're welcome. You're so welcome. And I don't know, do you have a chat or any of your listeners write questions while we're speaking or does that not happen? Uh, so that doesn't happen. Uh, okay. Most of the listeners listen to the audio of the okay. podcast, either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Okay. I post the uh, video interviews on YouTube too, oh, but um, usually there's not as much interaction on there. So, okay. Well, if I can answer any questions that they have for you belatedly, it would be a joy. If anything comes after our interview today, it would be my pleasure. So those are the second or the third and fourth grieve alone and be strong for others and then the last two are keeping busy and just giving it time and so keeping busy how many times have any of us and your listeners maybe been feeling down about a breakup something sad moving from one maybe job to another across country maybe having an estrangement from a friend, losing an aunt, uncle, brother, sister, someone ODs whom you love, whatever it is. And those emotions that come up are so complex and difficult to deal with that what we do rather than deal with them is we go out and we get another job or we go out and we find a way to just keep busy. I don't wanna think about that. I'm gonna work eight to five, my sister just died, my honey divorced me, my whatever fill in the blank the loss is, I don't want to deal, I'm not going to go there, I'm going to get another job from seven to 11. And I'm going to do this for the next year. So I avoid feeling what I'm feeling. I've heard this in my practice, private practice, again, and again, and again, the absolute exhaustion from a client who has tried to deal with their grief by keeping busy it doesn't work. It's not the solution. The solution is to walk through the pain and come to the other side of it by learning how to process pain. But many times in our culture, what we do instead is we keep in a whirlwind of busyness. I can relate to that, actually. I can relate to that. I know whenever I was going through different things in my life, Two of the main ways that I would kind of cope would be to just go out and drink with friends. You know, that's a that's a great way to burn multiple hours. Yes. Or I would go to the gym. And, you know, even though I guess the gym was a, a positive habit to pick up, uh, just like I guess you could say picking up another job would be somewhat positive because you make more money. Uh, it's still taking away time from you actually processing the grief, like you were saying, in a in a healthy way to to resolve it and come to peace with it. And that is something that I'll say about those two methods, even though uh, it was like temporary relief, it never did. It never was the thing that helped me to be able to fully get over whatever that hump was to come to peace. Because, and thank you so much for sharing that, Kamani. That's so real and raw. And the truth is all that, that keeping busy did and does for each of us is cover over the real experience of hurt and loss. That like a Band-Aid, you could yes, say. Yes, like a false Band-Aid. 
and very often when you have your guy friends, and I've had so many men in my practice and friends who get angry, like instantly angry at the smallest thing. And I look at that when I observe it and I say, what is going on? What is going on beneath that anger? Anger truly in my world of grief recovery is grief turned inside out. It's being angry about something that underneath that anger is loss and sadness and unhappiness that has never been dealt with. And the result is anger. And so I don't want to speak politically in this interview, but I will just say in my humble view that if we were to get underneath the psychology of some of the mass shootings in our country over the last 20 years, that the those who have participated in it and taken others out, if we had looked at their psyche, that would have been a very, very sad state of emotions. And that is why they're driven to such violence is that would be sadness and unhappiness and unfulfilled life unexpressed. And the result is violence, which is really a tragedy again and again and again. So, I don't want to belabor that, but just to give um, mention to that, that's how I see that, that so many times underneath anger is grief. I can see what you're saying. And I would, I would actually agree with that, where a lot of the people that you see committing heinous crimes, people that end up being murderers or committing, you know, assault where you're not killing anybody, but you're harming somebody is a lot of people kind of do that stuff out of frustration or something in their life that they're not happy with. And instead of taking the time to either, uh, you know, grieve or find a way to cope with it and press through it in a healthy way, uh, repressing it and never addressing the issue eventually kind of kind of builds pressure, kind of like shaking up a, a soda bottle. And then eventually it exactly. kind of explodes in that way where it caps off with people committing these types of actions. Exactly. That's very, very well said. That's exactly how I see it. And Every time I would hear of another tragedy like that, because I am fully engaged in my work and the way that I am is that I, I look, I hear that slice of news and I think, what happened to that human being that he was so miserable in his life that that was the only way he could see his way out was to hurt so many others and take himself out at the same time. It's just such a loss. It's so tragic. And if everyone, sometimes among my colleagues, I'll say, if everyone in the world was able to have a specialist who taught them how to process pain in the way that we do in our work, the world would be a happier place. <laughs> so there's that. And the final um, myth that is so precious to me and so clearly a myth is just give it time. How many times in your young life have you heard others say when something's been an upset, oh, come on, you'll get over it. Just give it some time. Whatever that upset has been, if it's been a loss of a schoolmate, friendship, a breakup, a whatever it might be, I say to your listeners, those of you who are hearing Kamani and me now, if you have had a loss of someone in your life by death, or divorce or estrangement five years ago, 10 years ago, 
15 or 20 years ago. And when you think of this person in your heart, you can still feel searing pain. If time were the healing issue, this would not be true. You'd be over it. But time does not heal. It's the action we take within time that heals. So the beauty of the program that I teach is that grief recovery program of eight weeks is an action-based program with simple steps that are taught from one week to another that teaches each of us how to process pain so that the relief that my clients will have from week one to week eight about any loss, whatever that great loss in their life has been, is a transformative experience from so much pain to peace of mind and heart in a way that they never expected could be possible, even for a loss that was 20 years old and still carried in their heart. And so just give it time is truly a false premises for healing. It doesn't happen. We don't heal in time. In fact, um, an example might be this, which is more simple. If you and I are on the freeway going to a to listen to Tony Robbins. We have a flat on the freeway. We're in the emergency lane. Are we gonna hang out and pull up lawn chairs so that the air finally like floats back into the tire? Are we gonna be in three seconds on the AAA AAA call saying, dude, get over here. We have an emergent tire issue. We need to have you come and take care of this like right now. It's the action in time that takes care of whatever it is. It's not just time passing. So that's why so many of us are still aching about someone who left our life years ago because we didn't walk through a program which taught us how to process pain and loss in a compassionate and loving way. And that's what the grief recovery method teaches. And that's why I so love my work because it's such a joy for me to witness transformation every time somebody is in their eighth week of the program and to see how much they've grown and how much pain they've let go of, no matter what that pain has been. I think so, that's a great point, actually. I'm glad that you brought that up because I feel like that's a popular misconception about working through grief where people don't see it as an active process like it really is. And so uh, to kind of give an example to, I guess, to clarify you know, how I feel about it and what my experience was whenever I was grieving about different things, it could have been loss or it could have just been personal things. The thing that I noticed for me to be able to get through it is that I had to sit down and look at what it is. That I felt like I was lacking or what the problem was. And I had to come up with a solution, I guess you could say to restore it, if that makes sense. So let's say something went on in my life that made me feel like I was inferior or, or worth less than I thought I was the next step in that process uh, in the grieving process to eventually heal from it was to find a way to reclaim that worth in a way, I guess you could say, whether that could be from doing different activities or things to, to build that sense of self-worth that you have in your head or maybe kind of reframing the situation. And so going from that perspective that you just gave, I think that's that's great. That's a great way to look at it to where people will take on the idea that it's supposed to be an active thing because from there, then people can actually actually heal and be able to make transformations in our life that can help them to move on from it permanently. 
to where it isn't just something that they have to sit with for the rest of their life like it would be if they took that that passive approach because as long as you're passive you never do gain that self-worth again you never do gain that uh, i guess something to fill that void from the loss that you had before yeah you are a very wise young man and a wise leader and yes that is exactly true it is the action that we take within time and so what happened for the sake of explaining to your listeners about this short-term program, which is educational, this is not therapy, um, although it has therapeutic effects, uh, is that there was a study, Kamani, in Kent State University at the College of Public Health. And what was shown after some weeks of adults walking through this eight-week program is that those who completed the program had significant changes in their knowledge of, their attitude about, their beliefs, and ultimately their behaviors about grief and loss. And that's the beauty of the grief recovery method. So it's an evidence-based method, which is the only evidence-based method in the United States. And I think it's good to mention, we talked about this last hour a month ago, that this program is now taught and the a book that I showed you earlier has been translated into 32 languages around the world. And there are offices with specialists like me in Mexico, in the UK, in Scandinavia, in uh, Australia and New Zealand. And it's just so exciting that the world is slowly learning about this method so that people can heal and have an action-based program that's structured and um, an easy program to follow, not always, but a program that produces peace of mind and heart in a beautiful way. Yeah, and that's, if your listeners are, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just going to say that that's great. I, I appreciate you bringing it up for the listeners. If any of them are encouraged to want to hear more, I know that you'll let them know how to contact me. Yeah, definitely. So same thing from the other interview. I'll make sure to have all of your links listed on this one. So that way, uh, if those people are listening and they decide that they want to find an action-based program that can help them deal with their grief, uh, process it. And also, I would say they could probably learn how to help others to deal with their grief, how to be a, a better support to the people that they care about. I'm sure that they can check out your links and they'll be able to find that information. Absolutely. And on my website, there are under the tab of resources, there's some wonderful articles that they can download that are complimentary. So there's that resource as well. So thank you so much, Kamani. It's been such an honor to be with you again. I so appreciate your good work and the leadership that you have for your followers. And I am so happy that we linked up together. Really my honor. Yeah, I'm happy as well. And yeah, I appreciate the compliments. I, I definitely try my best with my own personal development to make sure that I develop myself into somebody that deserves to be in a position like this to where I'm giving advice and helping other young men. So it's definitely something that I'm intentional about. And I appreciate you recognizing the work that I've, I've been putting in. I do. I do. And I, I'm sure that your family is very proud of you. <laughs> I, would, I would hope so. I, I think so anyway, at least from, from what they said. So I, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that pretty much wraps everything up. And so once again, Thank you for coming on to the show and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
Thank you. You too, Kamani. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Right. Bye-bye.